Okay, now we're back. Now we're back. Boy, it's been tough getting started today. For real. Yeah, it's, yeah for real. Third this time's is, a charm. The levels are good. Everything's... We've been off for, you know, what, eight weeks? How long has it been since we've done this show? I think at least three months. <laughs> I mean, Boy, with the wire good, brush we've, we've had, had some, to take to the rust in the last We've had some good minutes. shows this, this semester, though. We have. That's true. Some really good shows. Really good guests. Um, and we will continue to. I, I hope so. We've got some great stuff coming up. I hope the good times you know, in July keep or August. I hope they keep coming. But we've been, we're a little rusty because we, we recorded the last show that came out. We recorded like a week in advance because I've been traveling a little bit. You're traveling. I don't know what day it is. I can't, you know. And this one, we're just going to, we're going to go through some mailbag. Mm. We're going to just talk, you and me. And then we're just going to push this thing out, come hell or high water. I don't know what, I don't know what's going to be in it. Okay. Uh, there are going to be no show notes. All right. There's going to be no editing. Let's do um, Sometimes I edit, you know, like, you know, you know how I do, right? I mean, yeah. Just never for content, just to kind of... Minad, this is Minad. People call Minimal off, editing. right? If people are talking over each other, try to fix some of that, you know. But this is, this is just, uh, uh, this is going to be drinking from the hose pipe. Wow. You call it a hose pipe? Uh, what do you call a hose? Hose pipe. Drinking from a hose. Yeah. I don't I, think you need a hose and a pipe. Yeah. Drink from a pipe. Drink from a hose. I so don't think you need to drink from a hose. This pipe. is my wife. So she grew up in a in a um, in a very kind of southern family, which had you know mm-hmm. pretty thick southern accents and 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 used these kinds of phrases. And and I don't know if it's like a traditionally southern phrase to say hose pipe. There's there's a certain kind of like deep southern thing, at least in her family, where it almost bends back around again to the kind of words that, that uh, people use in England. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? Sure. Like I mean, if you think about the side of your house. And there yeah. could be a pipe coming out the side of your house, and it's that place where you attach the hose. So it wouldn't be silly to call it a hose pipe. Yeah, but I think they it's call a pipe it, for the hose. Yeah, but I think her family called the hose itself the hose pipe. Uh, well, yeah, I don't know about because that. The, because it is kind of like a pipe. It's just a flexible pipe, right? It is a pipe, just a flexible right. one. Yeah, it's a hose pipe instead so of a, a pipe pipe. Exactly. Or a rigid pipe or right. a metal pipe. Right. Okay. All right. Well, I think that's all we have time for today. Yeah. <laughs> What's the ordinary meaning of hose pipe? Oh, boy. We're going to get into that. Not right now. You, you don't think so? No. Well, I, when we open up the mailbag, I don't know what we're going to find. I think stuff's going to tumble out onto the floor. Mm. There's probably going to be some originalism stuff. There's going to be... What's did the you, ordinary did you meaning hear, of mailbag? What? What's, <laughs> did you hear that um, John Hodgman had a special episode of Judge John Hodgman for Max Fund supporters? You know, this is the, the, the and I am on. one, and I haven't downloaded this special episode oh. where he's gone the definitive hot dog sandwich issues and other food issues. I've not. I, I I am a Max Fun contributor, so I could get it, and I will mm-hmm. get it, and I will listen to it, but I haven't yet. I feel like we need to discuss that. His okay. interpretation is. Should I have spoil you listened it? to it? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you yeah. listened to that episode? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I don't want to talk about it till I've listened to it. He gives his like definitive definition, his de- definitive like criterion. You describe for what it makes to any degree you like, but I don't want us to talk about it until I've also listened to it. Maybe we should talk about it right now. No, okay, okay. Um, I don't mind because unlike yeah. you, I'm not a person who has a spoiler concern about stuff. That's so true. I'm happy to hear whatever you have to say about it. Yeah, but but I am also going to listen. We've to talked it. about this on prior shows. How it is like I do think like this is one way that you and I can't understand each other. I think. This is the, the unbridgeable air gap between our skulls contains this discontinuity, right? Okay. That, that you I think it's for, one way. For, I mean, for I, a movie that you're looking forward to, you will, as you have described it in the past. This is why I'm interrupting you because I want to make sure that this fact gets out there because it seems incomprehensible to me. You will even a movie where like suspense is part of it. You will try to find out everything you can about it beforehand. Yeah, if, I enjoy the, it. In fact, I mean, the more excited you part are, part of my enjoyment. Yeah, yeah. 
um, rather than afterwards. To experience it many, I experience it many times. I yeah. feel like I'm getting to see the movie more than one time. Now, I will look up a lot of stuff afterwards for a movie that really affects me. Sometimes I'll let it sit for a bit and then I'll do mm. some reading and then mm-hmm. I'll try to find, uh, you know, what have others written about this? Like, yeah. I get that part I, of it. And I can do that too. I mean, after a movie, if I want to go read some more reviews or... I'm, I can experience it many times in many different yeah, ways. Yeah, but it's that first exposure. That's that's what I'm not yeah, getting. Yeah, but each one is different. I mean, uh, reading about something is very different from seeing it or very different from hearing it. Mm-hmm. So they're each, you know, they're each a different channel and have not, lots of fun information in them. Yeah, it just seems very unusual to me. And I, w- I would love it if we had listeners who were like, yes, I'm a Joe. I, I, I research the heck out of movies that I see before I see them because I just want to experience, I just want a, a continuous experience of, of this movie dumb, like whatever mm. it is, e- even if it's like, now, like, so I can't imagine like the sixth sense. Yeah. Would you have read about that one beforehand? Sure. I mean, I don't see any reason why I wouldn't have. Oh. I, I don't think I did. Um, and you, you don't see how reading ahead would have diminished the experience of watching that film. I would have changed it. It would have changed it. Absolutely. Yeah, I, but I don't know that it would have diminished it or enhanced it or, or been neutral. Hmm. There's a part of me that admires that answer, and there's a part of me that thinks it could not be more wrong. Okay. And I'm not sure how I feel about I it. I mean, I understand, I definitely understand your perspective, which is the much more common perspective. Yeah. So I don't have I am a difficulty commoner. understanding I am where a you're coming from. <laughs> My views are if, um, nothing if not commonplace. Yeah. Uh, uh, in this regard, anyway. Uh, and, uh, and so I get it. Like, I hear you. Yeah. It's all good. Huh. Well, so uh, last week, um, I had the pleasure of giving a talk at University of Maryland, nice. and, and I saw and got to talk to some listeners, including listener Danielle mm. and um, and others. I, there may be other listeners of the show. Former guest Frank Pasquale was nice. was there, um, and boy, do they have a bang up faculty! I gave this paper, segregation of markets, that is out, mm-hmm. and got just really like you know home run feedback. So very cool. Yeah, um, they're yeah they do have a great dean, faculty there. Mike and Pappas it's... invited me, who's an awesome guy. It was a what fan, was that? Mike Pappas is the associate dean there, and okay. he's he's amazing. Had a great conversation at dinner. Boy, they're just like it's really fun to talk huh. to people who are really engaged and get maybe super someday feedback. I'll be lucky enough to give a talk there. Uh, one could you know hope springs eternal. Yeah. Um, and, but you did give a talk last week too. So, or this week, I guess. Just a few days ago. Yes. Yeah. And that was up in the Chicago area. It was. Text analysis and law was this conference at Northwestern and it was really great fun. And so you were talking about things, uh, elements. I don't know if we, which paper did you present or is it one that hasn't come out yet? It's in progress. It's, it's a work in progress and, uh, um, but it, yeah, continues the network analysis approach to, uh, Jurisprudence, stuffy stuff, right. stuffy stuff, stuff. Which we were lucky enough to talk about on this show. Yes. With Mike. Mad Mike. With Mad Magic Mike, the man. Uh, and that was a great show. That, that was, was a great, great episode. Show. It really was. And it's good. You know, it's, it's, just, it's just fun work. And, uh, you know, it's been said uh, by, by Richard Posner and others that you can think about the body of precedent as a as a capital stock of knowledge, of capital stock of information that provides services to uh, litigants and judges. And, and so you could ask, well, how, what are the different ways you could describe that stock of knowledge? And, and uh, you know, there are the traditional ways of describing it. There, there could be many ways of describing it. And mm-hmm. I'm just trying to explore and develop a new way of describing the stock of knowledge we have about precedent, which is a networked thing. So it makes sense to me to to say, well, let's try to understand this network thing as a network, mm-hmm. which it itself is. I mean, it, it makes itself into one uh, from this citation practice. So let's let's try to let's try to use that. Um, so I feel good about it. 
I enjoy it. Yeah, and and the act of talking about you know this is one of the pieces of feedback that we we got. Should we talk about that one? Maybe we should just turn Which to that one? one immediately. This is this is the one I, I um so I don't have the Slack in front of me. Uh, with all the emails, but um, there was one about the podcasting form and the journal form, and uh, I guess Steve and Bobby to, had talked yeah, about it on their show, right? National Security Law Podcast. They yeah. had, uh, they had an exchange about about those issues generally. Do you want me to try to pull that up? Yeah, if you want to pull it up. But I was just it just occurred to me now as we were kind of doing this kind of preamble to the show before we opened up the mailbag formally. But now that we've opened it, like you know, the act of giving a talk is yet another medium. Through which knowledge is transferred, and and it was you know I've been thinking about it because this this you know what I did was a faculty workshop, so it was kind of just my paper. Everyone yep. had read it. It wasn't like, it, um, but there are other settings too. Like you know I've given plenty of talks on panels at at conferences, and yep. that's yet another kind of, um, yet another kind of uh, uh, medium. And then of course both of us have talked about works that we've done on this show before, true, which is a kind of in depth conversation usually with another. Interlocutor, um, and you know most of our guests, we're talking about them, uh, talking with them about a paper they have written. Mm-hmm. So it's like a workshop in that sense. And what, so, what was the point of the of the feedback? I think they asked kind of a pointed question. Um, for the, the, which listener was it? Do you have it in front of you, or should um, I or should I pull I, it up here? I tried. I'm looking, not doing any editing here, so I didn't want to. Yeah. I tried looking, and um, it was just taking. Oh, so it's of uh, listener Ryan. Yes, uh, that's it. Writing about uh, an episode of National all the way back to the middle podcast. of February. Yes, oh, yeah. And um, so here, um, discuss audience and academic influence of different platforms, podcasts versus blog versus journal. Steve questions whether law review articles are properly ma- match up with legal academics' goals for scholarly impact. They quickly put off the topic for a future uh, date. Uh, well, you've had several episodes discussing ethical and functional problems with publication and distribution of legal scholarship. I don't think you've discussed Steve's question directly, and it seems like it would be in your wheelhouse. He says, up your wheelhouse, yeah, which sounds really, a little aggressive. I was, yeah, I, was, I don't really want anyone up <laughs> my wheelhouse You were kind of muttering right through that. And... You were muttering through that whole thing. You were kind of, you know, our, our, our listeners don't have this in front of us. But, but if you were trying to, to give them some. I know. If you were to summarize the, the issue, like what, what, what is the issue being teed up here? Like, you know. There are all kinds of different ways of communicating knowledge, and if academia is about communicating knowledge in some way, like first of all, you know that it's contested, like what kinds of knowledge, how, and everything else. But like, how do these different media now that there are more of them than I've been working hard, I've now typed out something, I will send it by the mails to a central <laughs> publisher who will then put together different things that people have mailed and then yeah. we'll mail them out. So you know, it's, you know, as a centralization kind of thing. So you know, now that we have other ways of doing it, like what's the value of all these things? Seems to put a lot of stuff up in the air. I think that's the the thrust of it. Would you say? I think it's a little more specific than okay. that. There's okay. that, and I think we can um, we can wonder what the goodness of fit is between a few different discrete modes of communicating as uh, professors, scholars, and uh, and the different things we're we're trying to communicate as those sorts of people. So we've got different kinds of things we're trying to communicate by way of knowledge production, and then we've got different ways of communicating. And some of them fit well together better than others of them fit well together. Right. And so uh, finding that goodness of fit, I think, is something we try to do. I, I, I feel like I try to do that. I feel like I hear other people talking about that. They're trying to do that. And, of course, the things change over time, too. So with the advent of things like a, a preprint service like uh, SSRN or Social Archive or whatever. Law these, Archive is another yeah, one. Yeah. All these things. Um, there's There's a way to distribute to the general interested public something at an earlier stage 
And then publication in a formal canonical version, which later people could cite in a canonical fashion, this thing was set on this page, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which is basically what the formal publication supports, among other things, is that sort of canonical tracing over time across different publications. I obviously have an interest in as someone who thinks about citation practice. Uh, like there's that delay, but but people can be reading it, talking with each other about it, even when that formal publication has not yet happened, right? So, uh, so that the the fact of those pre-publication uh, electronic uh, communications platforms, right? That really changed the uh, the way writing articles and publishing them and the things you're trying to communicate changed the way that fits together. Yeah. Um, I think it's different. Blogs for different, change it again. Yeah, uh, podcasts change it again. But it's different for different disciplines, right? I mean, so sure. So if this were mathematics or astronomy or something like that, I think there too, podcasts and blogs can really help. But they help in a slightly different way. I think that sure. They, uh, I'm not one of those things, so I don't know. Yeah, I mean, because you know, if it's mathematics, you know, you have a proof of something. Like you know, having it written down, that's enough, right? But still mathematicians give talks about things and 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 sometimes hearing it and seeing it done and being able to ask questions yeah. it it just makes a difference to your understanding and the key is like okay someone's done some work i need to understand that work in a way that i can kind of make my own where i can kind of align my mental model to what that person is doing right. and we can think through examples and you know cuz part of what's happening is a result but part of what's happening is a practice that you could use to get to other results well, and there's so, just, yes. So but, you're communicating right. multiple things. So there's that. There's also just a huge hump in kind of acquiring knowledge that someone else has gained, yes. right? Because it is difficult and there are a bunch of like steps, each of which might be easy, but like it's really, it's, you know, it's really yeah. easy to lose the thread. And sometimes hearing someone talk through that can kind of get you in sync, right? Especially when you can ask the well-placed question that kind of gets you over a little hurdle in your own mind that might have hung you up for right. a while. Um, in real time, you can you can sort of ask about something that can be super helpful. And like in astronomy or other, you know, other sciences, you could you could ask about things which don't appear in the paper. Did you try this? Did you try that? You can find out more about the techniques. I mean, they're all, and you can also do the same thing that we were just mentioning, like get over that hump of understanding yeah. to the extent that that's a, a problem. Also, you can point out weaknesses. Sure. Um, and and also discuss like, you know, future work. So there, there's all of that. Um, but also like podcasts and blogs there, you would think also could create different versions of that work which are aimed at maybe the general public. So, mm -hmm. okay, we know that, you know, the, the person reading this particular post or hearing this particular podcast is not going to understand all of the details of how this instrument works and all the statistical methods that we use to extract um, conclusions from the data that we measured with this instrument. But, like, maybe we can tell you the story so you get, like, why we're doing this and what yeah. we found and what questions it poses and all that, right? There's a huge public information component to other media in other kinds of sciences. And, and I would say that's true in law, but law is also different because as a dialectic, you know, we are constantly, you know, the whole point is to keep talking with one another, right? I mean, there is this mm. element of uncovering new knowledge, but a lot of it is about like, you know, exploring our understandings of a social practice amongst one another, right? So it's not just, you know, describing what is, it's also like constituting what is. Mm. And so conversing like the like the 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 talking about it with each other to discover it is constitutive of the thing we discover right right in a way it's there's a the, and i don't mean to make an un, unkind comparison far from it in a way it's sort of like 
I'm I'm not a primatologist, but I have this feeling like if if one were here and was talking to us about the the roles played by like, you know, um, uh, primates kind of picking bugs off each other and mm. grooming their hair and all that kind of stuff for each other, like there's some like what they what they find in that sociality with each other is constitutive of that sociality with each other. So funny you mentioned that because one thing I'm working on now is a piece of work in that field which suggests that that analogy is totally inapt but <laughs> but like i get the i get the broader point so of, of course it, right? i happened on right yeah. right but but i get the, the the image that it evokes of like what's going on with that is, is correct but um it, or at least like is is what you mean to evoke right yeah. it, um um interesting though the ways in which that may be false but hmm. um, but let's let's put that aside because okay. I, on future shows i hope we'll be able to talk about this work that i'm doing and, yeah, that'd and be think great. about that um, so, but, but also I think, so I can just speak to like our podcast and what I've done with blogs is trying to like scratch an itch in different areas mm-hmm. that are trying, you know, always trying to get somewhere new and, and pulling on threads that I think might get us somewhere new. And so you can, you can do things in books, you can do things in articles. I think some of the most interesting journal, um, interesting things in the kind of the genre of like journal legal scholarship are sometimes replies like or dialogues mm, between right. scholars. I always I always feel like that gets somewhere kind of fast. Um, but also then there, are the, you know, occasionally you'll find these like truly imaginative, really interesting pieces that make me think about law differently. Right. Because I'm someone has had a sustained conversation with me, although a one way conversation. Right. Um, and so so a podcast can or a talk. Um, and, and in a way, a podcast is kind of like a talk, but with fewer participants and less kind of performativeness, hopefully, um, you can, there is that interlocutor who you can imagine kind of being you, right? So when we converse about something, um, someone can imagine being in on the conversation, mm-hmm. right? Right. So it's like less one way. Um, but also by pushing and stretching each other in conversation, I think sometimes we can get somewhere with ideas that, that, that we didn't get in, in the paper. And I, I hope we do that with some of our guests, right? And it's like yeah. maybe it's stuff they were already thinking about doing. Maybe it's you know a, a different take on it that um, that you wouldn't have gotten just from reading the paper. And it feels more because we take the time. These conversations, also, uh, I, I think, what you said is true. And I also think that because they feel uh, more um, uh, fleeting, they feel more ephemeral. We let ourselves maybe uh, go to places and explore things that we might not think were were suitable for writing in a more considered way and mm. greater length, greater detail. It just would feel like a different thing. Um, and, and of course they're not ephemeral in the sense that these recordings exist. And, you know, we've got a, in our mailbag, we've got a, a, a note from someone who's like started listening recently to the very oh, beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get to that. Like, yeah, so yeah, they're yeah, going to hear yeah. this in like a year or two or something <laughs> like that. And and it's just funny because in that way, they're not ephemeral at all uh, any more than a, a book is. Of course, it could be lost or it could be destroyed or whatever. But, um, you know, the recordings are out there now. But in the in the conversation, it feels to me, at least subjectively, it has an impermanence that taking the trouble to write something down and following the practices of, of, you know, posting it somewhere and then it gets published somewhere. And that just feels different to me on this, on this sort yeah. of permanence notion. I, I think that's right. Although I, w- one thing that is attractive to me about both blogs and podcasts, um, and I, I re- also really enjoy writing, but like, uh, for in supposedly more permanent formats is the, is the dropping of the pretense of permanence, right? Which, 
obviously nothing is permanent and, and, and sure. books, books are ephemeral and, you know, but right. everything is kind of just, you know, there's this, uh, this subtle pressure on culture that, you know, all the kinds of communications we engage in exert, right. In, in ways that are sometimes hard to trace. And there is a, and in law, which is again, more dialogic than maybe other disciplines. I think the complexity of the ways that legal culture changes are fascinating. Um, it, not, not that that, you know, I mean, the philosophy of science is super interesting and contested and, and, that's also an interesting field. I mean, there's so much to talk about, but law, I think, is 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 different yet, right? In terms of how conversation over different media change its understanding. You know, the next generation, like what what will its assumptions about what it is that we're doing when we do law, like what what will have formed that? And um, some of it is conversation internal to law, whether it's legal, academic, or cases, and some of it is stuff which is totally external to law. To get back to the Topoi thing from the last episode, right? Mm. I mean, you know, I, anyway, I think it's super interesting. I, I don't know, but the ultimate answer is, um, I don't know what value, you know, in, ter- in terms of like, what, what, what is the value of these things? Like, I don't know. This feels like we were talking about before we started recording. Like, I feel like this is a thread that's worth continuing to pull on a little mm-hmm. bit just to see where it goes because yeah. it's, um, I have fun with it. And, and I do feel like I get ideas from the show and we get to new ideas that probably I wouldn't have gotten to otherwise. So it's a nice outlet, and it's also really rewarding when someone emails just to say, "Hey, I've been listening to the show for a long time, and and boy, you you know, you get me thinking about law in a way that I wouldn't have otherwise, or they're, maybe they're not in law, and and so they can see law in a different way, yeah, um, which appeals to like the mathematician me before I even went to law school, like you know that if someone had done something like this, I would have realized like a certain kinship that I had with huh. people thinking about law, and that's always kind of fun. So I don't know. Do you have any other thoughts about it? Um, n- n- no. Okay. Not at this moment. Let's go back to, um, oh, that's uh, January 2nd. I, I think we mentioned this one. Oh. Didn't we mention this Let's, one? I, I implore that we stick in February. We've done January things. Do not bring me January things. I just- Move I, along. I feel like we didn't- So, so we Move got along. I, I know we mentioned this email- on a prior show, but we haven't exhausted it. I, I think maybe we should continue to let this build up. So I'll just I'll just put a flag here now just to let um it's uh who is it? Listener Andrew who emailed about this is the bird scooter thing. It's an email about the bird scooter thing. It's the only way it could have been worse than being in January is that it is about a bird scooter issue in January. I, I don't know what you mean by that. Of course you don't, which is why you're continuing. And yet he persists. I, I I don't know I don't know the source of your irritation I don't I don't understand I'm it. Just gonna sit here. <laughs> when you listen back, you might w- ask yourself like, why was I so irritated by this? Nope. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I, so we have not discussed uh, um, this email in detail. I think the last time that we talked about it, we said, hey, we need to get back to this uh, issue because we mm. we'd mentioned that you know these studies had come out and you had some thoughts, and so I feel like we should let more of this build up because I think um, the idea of more of what build up more more of the information about scooter sharing and mm. ride sharing and, mm. and the different ways that transportation is kind of being mixed up and companies mm. are coming in and disrupting and people are pushing back against that disruption right. and it raised all these issues that we that we fought about I think last semester in interesting ways yeah. super fun I agree so um, rather than go through the email now because I'm not really prepared to talk about it 
I think that we should let more of these like disputes build up and maybe get someone on the show. I think this is worth talking about. Okay. Um, whether it's like ride sharing or it's uh, these dockless scooters and you know disruption of local transportation and climate change and all that. There's a whole mm. thing there that's like super interesting totally. to talk about. Um, and uh, so let's just put that in abeyance. Are you ple- are, how, how do you feel now? Joe? Is that okay? I am acting as if it has been put in abeyance. Okay. Okay. We got a couple of emails um, from about booking someone on our show. You like it when we get those? Sometimes we get those emails saying, hey, you know, you talked about this particular issue. You know, you have this particular issue. I think it would be really of interest to your readers if you mentioned blah, 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 blah. Mm. Apparently with no awareness that what we do is a podcast here. <laughs> do, you, do you like it when we get these emails? I, 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 this I, is basically spam, right? Yeah, I don't, really re- I don't really register them for more than a half a second. But Okay, what do you have next on your list? A February 11th email from listener Eric. Awesome. You want to tell me about that? About uh, Korematsu and the canon and the anti-canon. And uh, so listener Eric references the uh, that we had talked about briefly uh, in passing, this notion of a canon and an anti-canon and the canon are like like the major like just of the Supreme Court cases. Say these are like the major Supreme Court cases that like everybody should know that seem to be that are still like good law. Things like Brown. Um, yeah, they tend to be about uh, some of our core constitutional issues about uh, individual uh, individual rights and individual equ- and equality mm-hmm. before the law. Like if you actually look at what the ca- the quote canonical you know the canon and the anti canon like what are the cases about. They're about things like not segregating schools, about our, our internment of uh, people of Japanese ancestry during the Second World War and the fact that we now have regret about that, or at least uh, some people express regret. Uh, so it, they tend to be about the not just constitutional issues, but about constitutional issues of this sort of equality and freedom of conscience huh. and things like West Virginia uh, board against Barnett See, and I things put, of that nature. I would have put in the canon Marbury... And, that may be um, right. And, people and know other about structural. the idea of judicial review, right? Um, and judicial review, of course, is a is a key mechanism in in protecting individual rights. And I would have put uh, Wickard against Filburn in the canon, although yeah. that one is now contested, mm. right? That that's one where there's uh, contest. So but, there's kind of a law. I guess there might be like a law professor canon, and then and then a like a public canon. So like listener Eric's question is about how many canons are there and how many anti canons are there. Right, so and, did, and the anti canon is stuff like you know Plessy against Ferguson, Dred Scott. These are the cases that everybody agrees are kind of the the villains of constitutional law. Right, and and Plessy, uh, you know, separate but equal. Like so, it has both the case name and then the kind of the, and the, the principle, the, the anti-principle. Kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so Eric's asking, you know, are do individual justices have them? Or um, and I think there are, like, so we could look at the. Um, does he does he mention? Yeah, so he mentions Jamal Green's piece. Um, well, it'd be good to get him on. Good be good to get him on the show, wouldn't it? That'd be great. Yeah. Um, and so he wrote a th- thing called, I think, called Canon and Anti-Canon. Um, th- and then there were these more recent, there's a collection about Korematsu, a uh, collection of articles about Korematsu, uh, which is one of the Japanese internment cases. The, the, I, I think there are lots of them. I mean, in the answer to the question, you know, how many are there and what are they and who are they? Like, I think there are a bunch of them. I think there's a, a mainline sort of law professor one. I think there's a mainline kind of general public one. Yeah, that's uh, a good point. I think yeah. there are um, there are probably 
like even within different parts of law, like you probably, if you got a bunch of antitrust professors together, there, there'd probably be kind of like a canon and an anti-canon of good, really good Supreme Court antitrust cases and yeah. really bad ones. So how about this? How about, how about the idea that what a canon is, it's the, it's the set of things that you need to understand or the set of things that you need to consume in order to be able to have the kind of conversation that I think we should have. So, so that's the sense in which it's personal, right? So the, if I'm just a general con law professor, for me, the canon are going to be those cases that I think any lawyer should understand, right, right, as establishing principles. But I might also throw in some anti-canon principles in order to show in greater relief those cases in the canon. Right. But if what I am is a – if I'm trying to talk about like constitutional issues today and what is really important to understand for constitutional issues today from, from my, say, political perspective or how I think the law should change – then I might have other cases in there, especially in the anti-canon. For it might be Bush against Gore and Citizens United. Like in order to understand the things that I'm trying, the, right. the things that I think we need to discuss, here are the canonical or anti-canonical cases. And, and so that's the sense in which it's personal, I think, and and issue based. Yes, and and uh, I think it's interesting in the way that you describe it, which I very much agree with. I think it's interesting that that part of the canon, part of the canon anti-canon thing, is that they are both present. Right. So an right. anti-canon is not the the stuff uh, we don't do and you shouldn't do and no one talks about anymore. If people aren't talking about it, it's not the anti-canon. Right. It's the anti-canon when it is present, it, when the canon and the anti-canon are present together, throwing each other into really, it's this discursive or dialogic point again in a way, right? Mm -hmm. That you, you, you have a thesis and antithesis together informing each other, dynamically existing together at one time. Uh, the, the stuff people don't do anymore, it's not, that's, no one's talking about it. That's why they're not doing it anymore. And I think people, it's interesting. So you get a case not like Lochner, um, and, and Lochner is an early 20th century case uh, in which the Supreme Court struck down some state wage and hour uh, laws, um, uh, I think they were just our laws for bakers mm. and on grounds of kind of freedom of contract and, right. and so general governmental power. Substantive due process. Yeah. And um, and so this the, this has been vilified as a case belonging to the anti-canon because it represented the Supreme Court imposing its own both economic theory and theory of good policy uh, on legislation and preventing kind of the public from – kind of choosing, you know, differing with it on, on yeah. matters about which reasonable people could differ. Preventing different states from reaching their own views about how they wanted to regulate maximum hour laws for bakers in their states, right? right? So the state of New York might decide that given what it has experienced with baking that, um, uh, and, and what it's hearing from various constituency groups, bakers, people who aren't bakers, people who buy from bakers, people who hire bakers, <laughs> right? They could reach a, the New York legislature could reach a view about what they want to do with that. And that and that view uh, either can, will or won't be permitted to stand against some other conception of the way the economy should be ordered. In that case, the court said, no, it can't stand next to our conception of the way we think the 14th Amendment requires the economy to be ordered. And this has been a case which has been um, uh, uh, pretty consistently in the anti-canon for very, very many people on both kind of the left and the right. Uh, there's been a consensus view that this is an anti-canonical case. And so you see, for example, people like Justice Roberts raised this in his dissent in Obergefell, the, the gay marriage case, right. as an example of, you know, even if this is a good idea, gay marriage, and he says, you know, lots of people think that it is, it's, this is not something that the court should take away from the people. In other words, we shouldn't use our own conception of right. of of, of gay rights or, or, or to um, basically take away from the states the power to decide this 
issue of policy for themselves. So that's a that's kind of a anti Lochner line of reasoning, and so people deploy the case negatively, right, as saying, "Hey, this revives it." So, um, so people, but however, like it's interesting, right, because the pushback on a on an anti canonical case from people who disagree with that characterization is not necessarily to say it should be irrelevant. Sometimes it's to say it should be the opposite. It should be canonical. And so you've got all these uh, papers and books from certain libertarian law profs suggesting that that we rehabilitate Lochner and we see it in a mm. different light because for them, you know, so-called economic rights are just as important as other kinds of rights and economic rights can only be realized and by protecting them, well, not can only be realized, but it's important to protect economic rights using courts because of certain kinds of counter-majoritarian difficulties, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, so, for, so there are certain people who would want to remove it from the anti-canon and not just kind of toss it into irrelevancy, but make it part of the canon. Yes. And vice versa. I think Wickard against Filburn is another example. This is a case establishing that the the power of Congress to respond to national problems by legislating local activities, very local activities. In that case, it was the ability of someone to grow wheat at home, right? Um, despite a piece of legislation which would, when applied, have affected that ability. Um, that basically there is no limit to the kind of uh, to, to just how local Congress can get, because in the aggregate, even local things sum up to national things. And this is a, a, in the great, you know, in in the throes of the Great Depression and where lots of small local activities add up to problematic activities. And so yeah. Congress has to be free to reach national problems, even if in doing so uh, they are heavily regulating something which is hyper-local. And so, you know, Wickard stands for, for an idea kind of like that. I'm kind of summarizing very quickly here without having read the case in a long time, but that's, uh, th- that's the upshot. And there are a great many people who say that is the example of, it's, it's the archetypal example of a court with too much power, and that should be part of the anti-canon. Right. And then, and so we've seen a retrenchment with Lopez and yeah. Vawa and a few other cases. Well, but oh, it's interesting that it's I mean, it's um, the court is there uh, actually um, restraining it's the, the court is m- making itself more modest there in Wickard in the in the face of a congressional determination. Yes. So so the alternative would be uh, in that case for the court to have said, well, Given our role in policing the line about what is and is not interstate commerce, we're going to insist that Congress's determination that it's okay to aggregate a local effect um, because those local effects are effects which can can aggregate into an effect in the national economy. Right? We're gonna we're gonna substitute our job. So it's the court is not. Ha- it would be odd to me to say Wickard is a case that uh, showing the court having too much power. Right. Well, it, it's, it's complicated. It, they're act, you know, one way of yes, yeah, so one one way of looking at Wickard is 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 the um, the court is helping Congress vis a vis the states. Right. Is is adding to Congress's power and 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 at least opening the possibility that the states can have uh, will have less power. Right. Because Congress can preempt. And well, sure, but, because in a, in a, in an area of law where both the states and Congress can regulate um, and and. And when they do concurrently and without conflicting with each other, both can, both those regulations can exist, right? Um, and in an area where they're concurrently acting and Congress's regulatory choice uh, conflicts with that of the state, of course, it's the states that has to go because of the supremacy clause. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, but again, I, I, that's not the court's power or that's not the court be flexing its power. That's the court taking itself a bit 
further back out of the equation, it seems to me. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a little bit complicated because the there can be the substantive standards by which you decide whether Congress has exceeded its authority can be can be reticulated enough so that whether you strike down legislation kind of depends on the policy implications of the law, right? It, you know, so so the way that you the way the court like will apply the commerce power could be sensitive to um, kind of the directionality of that policy in a way which has a political valence to it. Mm. I, I don't. I mean, I'm not going to get into it, but like you can imagine a standard for striking down congressional legislation under the commerce clause as exceeding the scope of the commerce clause that would tend to strike down legislation which like helped these groups or did this thing, but not these other groups that did this other thing, in a way that had political implications and therefore. Kind of the tests the, that the Supreme Court devised would, in a way, be a political test in and of itself. But I don't think that matters. I mean, the the general point, well, it does matter. But the general point here only is that people view Wickard very, very differently, depending on their views about federalism, about Congress's ability to reach national problems, about the dangers. So, and That's other people true. like me think that Congress does a lot of things that it shouldn't do, like the you know federal criminal law should be cut, you know, rather dramatically, in my view. So. Yeah. But but the question is like it, should the Supreme Court be the one to set those limits? Um, are there other so, ways to do it? So you can imagine on this on this these two specific things that we've been talking about. You can imagine that whereas I myself probably would if you said you know would you would you put Wickard in your canon and Lochner in your anti canon? I would probably say yes. Uh, whereas you can imagine another person saying actually I would reverse those. Right. right, that Lochner would actually be in my canon, and Wickard would be in my anti-canon. Right, and, and that person would be taking a more libertarian, or what I might call an anarcho-libertarian perspective on sort of the state and its role depending and on all how, that stuff. yeah, libertarian or anarcho-libertarian, depending on how strongly you read those cases and what you would do with them, probably right. Right, I mean, I think libertarianism tends toward anarchism, but that's <laughs> but that's my again, that's my yeah, perspective. Yeah, no, I hear right? you. I hear you. Um, um, okay. What else is there anything else to say about this? Uh, well, no. I mean, I think we've got. Uh, I, I think it's. I'm glad we've got five hours to go through this mailbag because um, there's a lot here, and so that's good. We'll get through taking, a few more. We're we'll ta- get through we're, a few we're more. We're taking good care. I think that's good. This so is, that was listener. Um, that was listener Eric, and we talked about listener Ryan. Um, I think we're on listener Barry, February twenty second. Oh, the yes, mailbag thought, and I I have to apologize, to listener Barry, because I had misstated the email address and. And he had sent that to that first, and that was a bit of a... Oh, really? Yeah. Well, he okay. says right here, apologies, oh, I took Joe at his first word and paused to send this message to the wrong address. Now, the right address, of, cor- of, of course, is oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com. That is oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com. Indeed. Not any other email address. I mean, most other email addresses, if you use them, we will not get it. <laughs> That's a fair point. Okay. Uh, so listener Barry is asking about the, the, the verdict in a Scottish law uh, not proved, uh, which is sort of intermediate, I suppose, between uh, guilty and, uh, and not guilty. So we have the two verdicts, guilty or not guilty. This is at, at criminal, in, in, in criminal law. We correct. have a similar thing in civil law too, right? Libel or not libel, right? Um, yeah. But, uh, but, but in, in Scotland, they have three verdicts. This was famously um, uh, advertised to the American people during the Clinton impeachment scandal. I think it was, what's his name from Pennsylvania? Senator Arlen Specter. Yes. And he, he was wishing that the Senate could have a, a similar third option there. Yeah, and I, it's interesting. I, I, you know, I don't know. Um, I've not, I, I'm, I'm not a student of Scottish law. I don't uh, know its details. I don't know 
what as a practical matter is a verdict of not proved does it have a consequence that is in any way different from the verdict of not guilty my understanding is that it does not have any consequence that is different from the consequence of guilt verdict of not guilty yeah so i i am not nearly expert enough to be able to talk about any material consequences of of these two verdicts but i you could at least say that they that they send a different communicative and so what would right Right. so what would Uh, that be i guess it's the jury conveying um you know we're awfully concerned here at some level like it's not not proved sort of suggests this sounded terrible (laughs) but it, you know, the state didn't really prove the thing they had to prove to convict you. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, we're going to return this person to you, community. And here's how we want you to think about that. Right. May, you know, not proved. This person's kind of sketchy. Right. And we uh, kind of colored their face in yellow highlighter. It's yeah. like we want everyone to be able to see them real clearly. Not proved. Uh, that, that's just how, again, knowing nothing about I, I don't teach criminal law. So it and sounds to my these. ear. Yeah, it sounds to me as though it is a the kind of punishment that we generally eschew in the United States, right? This idea of, um, and, and haven't there been, again, I'm kind of just talking off the top of my head here, like courts entering punishments that are meant to, what, what's the word I'm looking for here, Joe? Um, uh, not tarnish or smear or... It's sort of what's like a it? shaming thing. Yeah. It's like a scarlet letter kind of idea. I mean, in, in, that, in that sense, as we're coming around to And those are almost it, always um, struck down by courts as cruel and unusual, I think. Oh, interesting. I, yeah, I think I, so. I mean, as as we're coming around to it, it's sort of like, yeah, I'm, I'm. If that is what it is, and that's a big if, as we both said, but if it really is functioning that way, yeah, I don't think I'm a fan, because it's sort of like, you know, look, um, the 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 state uh, carries the burden uh, to uh, convict criminally and take someone's liberty away uh, under potentially. These, uh, right under these very high standards, and so like you, you they either accomplish that or they don't. Um, and a and a bunch of editorializing from people in the community about well, like, ah, it's not doing much for me. The one thing I could that that I think could be valuable about it, depending on how the community takes it, you know, if they take it in a scarlet letter way, then it has harms which outweigh any potential benefits. But if a prosecutor brings a case against someone threatening them with imprisonment, especially, right? I mean, um, and the jury comes back and they have available not proved or not guilty as alternatives to guilty. And they have a not proved verdict that says, okay, prosecutor, maybe you were justified in bringing this, but it didn't quite clear the bar. But a not guilty verdict may send a signal that the prosecutor should never have brought this case, right? We, we've, we looked at all the evidence and we concluded you know, I don't know if it's – see, this is where I don't know what Scottish law yeah. says. If it's beyond a reasonable doubt that they're innocent or more likely than not that they're innocent, I, I'm not sure exactly. But to the extent that a jury is kind of convinced of innocence, it's like, prosecutor, you did a bad thing. And, and, and if there are consequences of that, you know, maybe. And, maybe. and so maybe the maybe it, it, it isn't even that there should be three. Maybe there should be four. Oh, boy. Right? What, what so should the fourth one be? You know, um, guilty, not proved, not guilty. Um, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, that, um, and, and here's a, you know, a payment that the jury can exact from the state that is, that is given to the defendant. Okay. So we did a whole show about, um, about sacrifice and, and burdens of proof and all that a, a while ago. So, but, but, um, so we're not going to revisit all that, but if we were just to kind of like casually and wrongfully, like put these on a scale, you might say that like guilty is like 95% certain of guilt. And then this like not prove would be between like 95 and 50, Right. 
and then not guilty would be between like 50 and five and then and then you've got to be kidding me would be like between five and zero like beyond a reasonable doubt the person is innocent which means that like even the even the prosecutor's suspicion that they were guilty was unreasonable and so and so to to uh clean up you've got to be kidding um (laughs) maybe we would uh to use a word that's been in the news incorrectly it seems perhaps uh these days uh we might be exonerated (laughs) well but ah, where where the jury says like yeah you you gave it your best shot and you tried to prove all this stuff and it's actually just completely wrong to me to my ears exoneration has the the has a dent of dispelling what seemed like and was otherwise a reasonable suspicion maybe like to be I mean, exonerated means to now sometimes it's to dispel a what what seemed reasonable but but only seemed reasonable because of lies and other things right so 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 a um a corrupt prosecutor brings something you're exonerated you know that that's one way another thing can right. be that it was perfectly reasonable to bring the case and because there are all these witnesses, but ah, you found you had an alibi that people and you yeah. were you were shown to be not yeah, guilty, right? And shown to be innocent, actually. I mean, so yeah, yeah. But, but, but different terms. So maybe yeah. so maybe maybe we need more ways for the jury to tell us uh about its ultimate conclusion about what it processed. I wonder who's writing about all this. I don't know. I don't know either. I mean we should look into that. But yeah, um more, more, more in exciting and... ways for the jury to be confused about <laughs> what what it's supposed to say <laughs> in light of this confusing evidence. Yeah, there is right? that. Yeah. All right, what's next? What have we got next? Listener Nick um from Australia or, or oh excuse me, from New Mexico. We have a listener Nick in Australia, don't we? Yeah, I, I think get we them do. confused. But this is listener Nick. We have who's, several listeners from Australia. Listener Nick who's trying to um talk about based on several several corresponding listeners from australia many Mm, many listeners right yeah uh listener nick uh talking about based (laughs) on and the other thing that people incorrectly are doing these days and i'm just not even gonna i mean he's trying to give these examples oh you're you're not you've got to read the examples no 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 no, he worked i'm gonna read them no no i protest no i protest no no. well well i i've heard your i've heard your protestation i vigorously protest and i dismiss i ardently protest so this is the this is the uh, the tendency in modern spoken English, especially among young people, to substitute for based on or based upon, to use an even older formulation, based off. Like, you know, I, I reached this conclusion based on my evaluation of the evidence. Um, a young person these days might say based off my evaluation of the evidence um, in a, I think, highly well, regrettable Might also evolution. say based yeah. off of. I've heard that as well. Yes. Just throwing, why don't we just throw in more prepositions while we're at yeah. it? Equally based, in inapt. Based up off. Based up off of. <laughs> How about based that? Up off. <laughs> based off in of. Yeah, just it's all word salad at this point. <laughs> Throw in another radish. I mean, it's all nonsense. But but listener Nick raises a what he what he thinks could be a few legitimate uses of this. So let's hear. Let, I'm, so I'm going to say that I'm going to read them. You like. I'm going to read them, and then you're going to give me your judgment uh-huh. on whether this was a proper usage or not. This is uh, proper or not. This is a new segment of the show <laughs> where where Joe will like pretend to be Judge John Hodgman. Boy, he had some good ones in this in this in this uh, Max von Donor thing. Mm. Right, like uh, which it, I haven't heard yet. Right, is a. Um, uh, oh boy, there were some there were some really good ones. Like is a is a this or that. A bunch of those. Mm. A bunch of very clever uh, listeners. Is breakfast who, cereal a soup? That was one of them. Yeah. Is it, you know, Rice Krispies and milk, is that a soup? And the answer, of course, he gives us no. And um, a <laughs> little spoiler. Isn't gazpacho a soup? My neighbor's son. Can't be temperature. Are you listening? Yeah. Okay. 
My neighbor's son has a, quote, lunar lander housed in his backyard, quote, moon base. The lander is based off the moon. Is that correct? I mean, uh... <laughs> this all's just so, Wait, so annihilating. I think it's awesome. I, I, I rather enjoy it. I, I, think, I think that's not correct. I, I don't get how based off works there. Cause, well, see, he's calling it a lunar lander, but yeah. the lunar lander um, is not on the moon. It's on Earth. So it's, it's, not, it's based on the Earth and therefore off the moon. It's based in a place other than the moon. Yeah, but but it's in it's in this like the the pretend story here is that we've got a lunar lander which is quote unquote on the quote unquote the moon, right? So it's in in the pretend world it's based on the moon. It's based on the pretend moon. Now here's where I think it would work. So you've got a spaceship which is docked orbiting the moon, right? And someone's saying, well, where's where's the ship? Maybe they're not sure. Is it is it landed on the moon or is it? At doctor the space at the space station, they may say, you know, what, it's not here, and usually it's not because it's based off the moon, right? It's not yeah, based, based on the moon. in a place other than the moon. Exactly. Yeah, it's kind of off world. It's got that kind of off world. And um, I think what people would actually say in that instance, they wouldn't say it's based off the moon. They would say it's based away from the moon, or it's hmm. it, it's it's off moon. You might say it's based off world or based I, off moon. Yeah, I don't know. Off moon sounds weird. Um, I think you would say based in orbit is what you would say, or based at the station. Yeah, you could, right. Would you say yeah, based at? Based in orbit, orbitally based. Ooh, okay. Ba- but, or, but you wouldn't say based off of the moon or based off the moon. You would say based off moon. Mm. So off moon would be this compound adjective to describe where it was based. Mm. You wouldn't say based off Earth. I think you'd say based in Leo, you'd say based in Leo, like low Earth orbit, or you'd say based in orbit, or you know, I don't know. Whatever. That's a tricky one. I'm not sure about that one. Nick. I just Nick, I'm not sure about that at one. At this okay. point, I'm just prepared to ira- just banish the word base. Number two, any version of it from the English language. Oh, I, I like the word based. Number and the whole thing, right? The whole based off comes, I think, from sports. I think it comes from from people leading off uh, off a uh, uh, like first base. You know how you know they they're at first base and they're they're gonna they're threatening to steal and so in between uh, hits. They, so I think or, yeah. or, or off base. Yeah, so they're kind of off base. So it seems like a sportsy kind of thing. Yeah, and it seems regrettable. Not no only I don't. not only for that reason, but also for it's that no reason. No wonder I can't grok. Number it. two, I'm not, Joe. I'm not a sports ball person. Number two, you ready? Let me hit you with this one. Flat Earthers attempts. I'm gonna do every one of these. Flat Earthers attempts cartography are based off of the earth however flat earth maps are based on a world the fantastic world of imagination just so i like nick (laughs) i think nick is great nick nick if i had to guess nick is someone's dad (laughs) and if i had to guess even further nick might have grandkids Oh, no, 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 no. I don't think so. Maybe. I don't know. But I'm, I'm sa- sure. if I had to guess, right? He could. I, I would... think he's a dad for sure. And I think he might have grandkids. But if he doesn't have grandkids now, he's going to in his future because he's mm-hmm. full of love and <laughs> like a dad he has. Yeah. Because this is just torture. I, I, don't, I mean, this is dad I, pun hell Oh, I for disagree me. with you. I disagree entirely. I know. But you're a dad and I'm not. I am. I am. That's true. And you're going to be a granddad someday and it's, this is all good. Maybe. But I might, and I'm ready for. I'm, but I'm I am, a dried out little husk. I am ready for that. and you know, so I don't get any of this. Yeah, I, I think. Yeah, I, I think really to get the dad humor and dad jokes, you have to have been through child rearing, which is 
unbelievable and fascinating and beautiful and all those things, but also requires certain amounts of compensation mm. in the end, right? And one right. of those is being able to mess with your kids, yeah, right? And, and this has that all over it. Right. Just that, in my mind. So when I do them, like dad, it's not about me. Like these are not things that I would say if it were kind of just me. But boy, do I love to like, you know, this is like when my son was in the fourth grade and I would show up and drop him off and I would say, hey, to the other kids, you guys want to join Club Cool? Oh my God. Did you really <laughs> yeah, do that? Yeah. I say it's spelled with wow. two K's, club and cool, like with two K's. But hey, only cool kids can join this club. Wow. You want to join? Yeah. They. <laughs> mm. His mm. cheeks must have just been burning. Yeah, it's not easy to be my kid, Joe. It's it's really not. I, so, I, um, so I don't know about that one. Let me let me let me hit with the last. This is the last one. Last one, okay. Number three. You ready? Like any other sandwich, a hot dog consists. <laughs> now, <laughs> do you think a hot dog's a sandwich? Uh, no. Okay. Um, uh, the 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 and this is my disagreement with Judge Hodgman. It depends on the reason you're asking the question. But let me go on. Like any other sandwich, a hot dog consists of a moist or greasy filling based off of flatware, sticks, or other inedible containment technologies. Instead, the meat filling is based on an edible container intended to be consumed concurrently with the filling. It's just too complicated. I'm lost. I don't even know why I'm talking about based on or based off in that example. Well, he's saying like in the, in the first one, so, so the first is a physical, you know, that the... That the meat, the uh, hot dog consists of a moist or greasy filling based off of flatware. In other words, it's it's a physical offedness. But the, talks about but the second one is conceptual, right? Yeah, it can be based off the stick because because the, the the meat doesn't get inside the stick; it's outside the stick, oh. right? So 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 the, so based off, and all of these are playing with right using based off in a physical sense while using based on in a conceptual. For sense. For some value with the word playing, <laughs> I love it. I. Nick, you will make my year if you just kind of keep these coming. And Absolutely. I, I, will, I will read them at every mailbag That'd just, to, just to see the expression on Joe's face. Yeah, right. I love it when other people irritate Joe as much as I do. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's, should we do one more? Or we're, only, we're not even to March. I know. Ah. Ah. Um, but we're getting close. So do, should we do one more, Joe? Sure. Okay, at what, least what, one more. Yeah, hit me. What you got? Well, I think you can, I talked about listener neck. You, you, you should, had all these summarized, I thought. You, you got them in notes. You're ready to go. I, I don't have them summarized. I have the entire emails reproduced in my little notes app. Okay. I copied and pasted. So this I have is, the whole thing. I have no summaries. All right. I think this one references the discussion that you and I had about Judge Wald's article about um, judicial practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and opinion writing. Yes. Um, which was a lot of fun. That was a good conversation. It was. Yeah. I Harkens back to some of our earlier ones. Oh, you know, there was part two to that email above about, um, it was about, um, the value of podcasts and, and journals. Remember that email from listener Ryan, I think it was, mm-hmm. right? Um, remember the second part he said, you know, I, he was asking about updating our speed trap. Oh, oh yeah. he says, why haven't you submitted this to Judge John Hodgman? That was the second part of his question. Yeah, but we don't have a dispute to go to Judge John Hodgman about speed traps. Yeah, I think we used to. Not really. I, don't know, I, I feel like this is a dispute which has escaped the bounds of, uh, of trial court litigation mm. and is, is wending its way through a series of appeals, uh, which will only be kind of resolved over time. Okay. Okay. Man, you, you're really all about business today. We're doing the mailbag. This is, it's like, it's so like, you want to talk about stuff in the mailbag? You want to you know, talk about stuff not in the mailbag? We're br- doing the mailbag. This brings me back to the days when 
uh, when maybe I'd have some friends over. We're like recording something. We're doing some music. I used to do top ten lists, mm. like Casey Kasem with my friends. We, nice. would, we would count them down. Yeah, count them down. And of course, all of them were on various kinds of tapes, like cassette mm. tapes. Right. And you, you got either your sixty minute tape, thirty minutes aside, or you got your ninety minute tape, mm. forty five. Or if you managed to find them, maybe you found one of those one twenties. Do you ever find those 120s? No. Always questionable about whether the quality was as good because mm. you're really kind of stretching it out there, right? Right. Uh, so, so all that's to say, you know, this little little line here that's this little uh, uh, thing on 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 the on the audio DAW that you can see, as you say, DAW. No, I cannot see. Um, it it continues. Yeah, it's 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 going along, and it doesn't seem like it's going to stop. Okay. I got, I got gigabytes and gigabytes on here, Joe. Let's go for this it. This is not a 90 minute Maxell tape. It is not for sure. That Dear was, Joe and that Christian. That was a brand, wasn't it, Max yeah, 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 yeah. You briefly touched on something a couple episodes ago that I was curious to hear a little more discussion about, if you're willing. <laughs> That's, I'm, I'm glad you asked that because <laughs> what this episode has revealed is that maybe Joe, you know, needs to be, needs to answer that question first. Okay. Obviously, I'm not speaking from a vantage point of expertise, Bob. Forgive any errors. You don't need to say that. Like, yeah, it's fine. Uh, designation of an opinion as an unsightable just because it was not published seems to me to be for the worse. I don't understand the harm in allowing the citation of unpublished opinions as persuasive authority. I took Christian to argue that he is in favor of making unpublished opinions unsightable, which made me want to hear a little more on his point of view on this. Publication is for a distinct purpose to my mind, the advancement of the law. However, the provision of alternative analyses of the law for litigants to draw from, even if the law is not technically being pushed forward onto new ground, is immensely valuable. In academia, competing ways of explaining the same result exist in tandem. The variety of available ideas shapes dialogue, and, through that dialogue, pushes the body of knowledge forward. I take Christian's point about grooming the corpus, Mm. which I guess is a phrase that I use to mention kind of the judicial power to manage which opinions were citable and which weren't, in other words, which would be in that body, Uh, I believe he said. But is is that not accomplished simply by designating published opinions as precedential and unpublished opinions as merely persuasive? The idea of the law as a bird preening itself for cleanliness is a bit off-putting to me. (laughs) It is kind of a gross kind of image, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. I think we should look at the law as a system of pools. In the center, we draw from a pool in which the opinions have been accepted and must be followed. We draw from that pool primarily, but there are many other pools, much larger and full of ideas, waiting in the queue, called up periodically and tested for inclusion in the primary pool. If we don't allow the citation of these opinions, the ideas contained within them can never attain ratification as valid legal reasoning. As others have commented, this creates a disincentive for judges to exercise high-quality legal thought in every opinion. Perhaps worse, it discourages judges from uh, it discourages judges from dissenting to opinions that will not be published. Dissents expose uncertainty in the law and are valuable signposts for areas of the law that require greater clarity. Same argument holds for unpublished reversals of lower court opinions uh, of lower courts. Could there be an elitism concern inherent here? I have no idea if this is true, but I would not be surprised to learn that a relatively small proportion of judges create a relatively large proportion of published opinions. I'm not clear on who exactly designates an opinion as publishable. I'd imagine that it's not the judge who wrote the opinion, but perhaps these are some things you could shed light on. Let me just take the last thing last. Um, last thing first. Yes. Um, yeah, we, we need to hit stop soon, don't we, Joe? Because I'm, I'm, I'm falling apart here. Mm. Uh, last thing first. This the practice maybe varies from circuit to circuit. Although maybe there's a new rule, I'm not up to date on this. I just remember what it was like when I, when I was a clerk and what the Second Circuit's practices were, as I remember them. Which again is you know, you know, may, maybe somewhat hazy. Um, but but no, there's not a, an ability for an individual judge um, to 
there, there's not like an, an elite group which decides, oh, these good opinions by these elite judges are citable and these others aren't. Um, the rule had been that if an opinion makes new law or decides an issue that hasn't hadn't been decided in the circuit before, that generally that you needed a published opinion for that. That if all you did in doing so was to adopt the opinion of another circuit, then we it, you issue that in a so-called per curiam. And both per curia and opinions are citable. Uh, they are, you know, the product of the circuit. They are cited in new cases, and they are the things that you can cite to for those points of law. But if all that was happening in a, in, in a case was the application of existing precedent to decide new questions, um, then that would be done in a so-called summary order, and summary orders are not citable. So whether something is citable within the Second Circuit's rules at that time, and again, I don't have an update for you on this, um, that that had entirely to do with, uh, with, with something which was outside the control of the judges, in, at least in a sense, and that is whether new law was being made. Um, and so but the, the panel itself would be deciding, the panel that issued the decision would be the ones who would decide which thing they were doing. And they yes. would embody that decision by writing it up one way versus the other way. That's why, yeah, there's, there's a formal sense, right, in which the decision is outside their control. But there's a less formal sense in which they get to decide, like, you know, how aggressive to be. What what are the grounds for this decision? And are those grounds really ours? Are they new, you know, generally? Or are they different from other circuits, in which case we need an opinion? Or are they, is it just like the routine application of of cases we've already decided? And I can tell you that, the vast majority of cases we decided when I clerked on the Second Circuit went by summary order because they were nothing more than the routine application of existing precedent. And do you have the sense that if one of the judges on a given panel had felt a little bit differently about that in an individual case and that judge expressed that sentiment to the other members of the panel that they would be like, oh, okay, let's have a, an opinion? Yeah, I imagine at that time there would have been um, and this was at a time when they could have used email, but the Second Circuit used faxes. They may still use faxes for all I know. But I think the faxes would have flown about that issue, about whether this legitimately should be a summary order or an opinion. So I don't think they would have just rolled over and said, oh, OK, we'll make an opinion. I think there would have been a discussion about really sure. whether this was. Yeah. And and part of that is uh, that decision has to do with the authority of the panel. Right? The, the, the panel is inferior to the Second Circuit as a whole or sitting in bonk, right? Sure. And so to the extent that there is already a holding in the Second Circuit, that holding can only be overturned by the Second Circuit in bonk. Yeah, but I wasn't asking about overturning. I was asking about it's but more see, the, than a mere application of an existing precedent to just a new set of facts. But these are connected because sure. the conclusion that something hasn't been decided before is a conclusion about the meaning of earlier precedents. Yes. And to the extent that you decide you're doing something different, that's an analysis of what earlier panels had done. So th there's something really substantive about that, right, uh, that, that a panel has to go through. Yes, really substantive. Yes, I suppose. Meaning you're really determining the substantive meaning. I, you know, maybe it's yeah, a procedural own, case. And but, uh, just to be of, clear, and yeah. I will surprise neither you nor uh, the our correspondent, um, my, my own inclination would be um, to to err very heavily in favor of all of their all, all of them being regular published opinions. But um, that that the the mere fact that you view this new set of facts as a thing that's well embraced by the thing you've already done is itself further development of the 
strength of that legal principle. So I, I, I would have, yeah, I, or I would have leaned in, on average in a given case, my, my lean would be away from treating it with a summary disposition. And, I mean, all these and, things are accessible. We need to clarify certain things, right? So it's not as though the decision not to publish it makes it secret or inaccessible. Of course. All these things are easily accessible Absolutely. to any lawyer. And, and as so, of a rule uh, that was amended in the Federal Rules of Appellate Procedure in the mid-2000s, mm-hmm. um, no circuit can prevent or restrict someone from citing a, a circuit case to that circuit um, on the ground that it is unpublished or non-presidential or a, you're just not, you're just not, a circuit's just not allowed to write such a rule. Right. So people now can cite them. Not So not only are they publicly accessible and there's a separate reporter called Federal Appendix and this which was, collects this came, them. And, and this came after I clerked. There, the Federal right. Appendix existed when I clerked, but the... Uh, but this comes after uh, this. This rule, I think, came after I clerked. But I, I still don't think that requires the court to treat them with any precedential value. No, uh, uh, quite so. And the 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 rule, it's if anyone wants to look, is thirty two point one of the Federal Rules of Appellate Procedure says a circuit cannot prohibit or restrict someone from citing a case, which means they can treat it however they want to, based on it, looking at it and seeing what it says, and it says what it says, and it means what it means to them, and they're applying things as they apply them. Right. So, yeah, it doesn't the rule doesn't tell them they have to apply it as a as an A or a B or a C or a D. Yeah, I I just I'm not I'm not sure how wise that is. It just pragmatically, because the, you know, um, the number of cases is pretty high because unlike the Supreme Court, you know, the courts of appeals don't have cert. There are various things to to manage cases. um, But and a lot of these really are quite easily resolved on existing grounds. And so my point about, I guess, the grooming, the corpus point was that law would be simpler and more accessible with kind of fewer moving parts. And so if you kind of looked up what the rule was on a particular issue and you kind of were able to search, it's easier if you come up with just a few key cases that are enough to make the argument where maybe like having four, five, six hundred um, doesn't really help your argument. <laughs> Now, of course, a, a good lawyer is going to know that, you know, the ones that are published in F3rd, you know, that, that are opinions or a procurator, those are the important ones. And maybe I can use facts from some of these summary judgments to uh, – um, uh, summary orders to help me out. Sure. But other people aren't going to know that. Like a pro se, um, uh, a pro se um, defendant or a pro se litigant is nece- not necessarily going to know that. So – I'm not right. sure, you know, there are costs and benefits to having more cases. Quite true. And after my clerkship, I, you know, they, they, who knows how much of this is my getting assimilated to a practice of an institution of which I was a part. So I'm, I'm cognizant of that. On the other hand, I'm, I'm also kind of anti-complexity. And, and I, but I also know that, like, you know, a lot of work goes into an opinion right. um, that doesn't necessarily go into summary orders. I mean, there's a lot of attention to making sure you explain to the litigants. Yeah or the defendant, like the grounds on which you are reaching the appeal. And that is a very important part of all dispositions, including summary orders. But the, you know, writing when you know a thing will be cited as precedent is a different kind of thing Mm -hmm. uh, than when you write to explain, only to explain to uh, the the people in front of you why you've decided as you have. And I'm just not sure what we gain from having hundreds and hundreds of cases on a similar point. Um. Yeah. Um, well, I'm not sure either in the sense that it, it, it takes knowing the texture of those hundreds of cases to know what you gain from having them. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure that m- more opinions means more complexity. 
sometimes I, I would think that having more opinions would mean less complexity because it would mean uh, the the sort of the region of uncertainty around the around the proposition was smaller uh, because you had seen it work and apply in so many different constellations of facts. So you'd have a you'd have a more robust sense that. Um, you know, across this big range of things, it is the case of that X, yeah. right? So that makes that's actually less complex than, be hundreds, than you know yeah. X. But hey, who knows if it's still X when the following possibilities open up? Because we've got these two cases, but um, they still do that if you make this tweak. Well, we're not really sure, but we would have been sure if we had. So I just don't know if it really is. It, yeah, I'm it, not sure. I, I would like to hear from people who practice here or people who have clerked more recently and about how this has gone. Because now that I think about it, I think the ratio of like summary orders to opinions would have been more like between six and 12 to one, um, something like that, you know? So if, we, if there were 24 to 30 cases in a sitting for a week, maybe there'd be two opinions, three opinions or four opinions, something along those lines. So, I, you know, I, I, I'm uncertain about it. I, I don't know. I just... Um, uh, mm. I don't know if the Second Circuit I, had a practice. Uh, the Federal Circuit uh, did uh, when when I was there, and they still do. That if the court issues uh, an opinion as non precedential, which is how they referred to their categorization, or if they issue an opinion as non precedential, um, uh, anyone anyone in the public, either of the parties, um, could request that the opinion be made precedential. Yeah, I think uh, I think there was that. You have to yeah. file a yeah, yeah. A I, I never dealt and, with that, but hmm? I never dealt with that. Hmm. So if, you have to file a letter and make your request, and I would think that someone writing such a letter would want to articulate a reason why that someone might um, uh, grant such a request and decide to because it, the opinion might need um, changes, right? Uh, additions to make it more intelligible. Uh, for the reasons you were just pointing out before right. about the fact that, you know, you write these things in different ways depending on what they are. Right. Um, so, uh, so yeah. I, I just wanted to point out that that there are costs to having more cases sure. on the same point. Even there are benefits, you know, and you, yep. you can say there are benefits because each each time the law hits a new factual situation, it reveals a certain texture that oh. you might have missed otherwise. Yeah, I totally get that. More, there are costs to having fewer. But this is Holmes and Path of the Law, who is arguing against law as history, saying that basically we could burn all but the last couple of years of all the law books and, and not have lost anything. Yeah, right? and, that's, and, and, I, and that's just... I know that this offends you to your core, It Joe. doesn't offend me. It's not about being offended or not. I just think it's deeply, deeply dumb. I think uh, it is probably just about true. Hmm. <laughs> Okay. I mean, I, I don't. I'm not. It's in, called oral argument I, for a reason, folks. I'm not in favor of book burning. Don't. <laughs> Nor am I. Nor was Holmes. I'm sure. Although um, I think that the idea of burning some books, like something goes off, is in your in in some of the deepest, most primitive parts of your brain, Joe. This is you in particular. Mm. That probably triggers some kind of flight or fight <laughs> response in a way that like I'm okay, okay. You know, it's like. I don't like the idea of a book burning, but I think it offends you more deeply. Mm, okay. Like, to, to be clear, you know, if in my town or in my state or country there was a book burning thing, like, you know, I, I would be one of the, you know, uh, insurrectionists mm. for sure. Like, so that's how strongly I feel about it. But I I, I'm it, just saying that, like, books for you have a particular kind of meaning that, that, could that be. they probably don't for me. Uh, 
I think he, I think he hit it better when I, and I think it was Holmes uh, also who, who, who said, I think it was Holmes who said also um, that, you know, it's, it's an embarrassing, basically it's a, it's an embarrassing uh, thing if the only reason you have for a legal rule is that it was such, such was the, such, it was done in the time of Henry the, whatever. Yes. Henry V. Yeah, that was also in Path of the Law. Um, And I think that hits it much better, right? That, um, if that really is the only or principal reason you're doing something, you you could have uh, ten books or a single page that would make that point, and it it would be. And I agree, it's would not be a a great rationale right. for something. Um, the the you know, but but all the lessons learned and all the reasons learned, right. That aren't just about it was dust was it done in the time of Henry V, right. but but no there are reasons why we were doing it this way yeah, and we explain yes. them and how they fit together yeah. and that, and that's what's in all those books it, it, for him the, degree, the that's cases, what's in there that you should save that and use that the cases are illustrative of why we do things the way we do right they they're illustrations of why we might decide something in the because the the whole point of that. Yes, piece, and right, in the recording is, that we did it that way, they illustrate that we could do it that way and reasons why we could do it right. that way. Sure, sure. And so then the question is, well, how far back do you have to go before we have a sufficient catalog of illustrations so that we could do it right, you know, in the future? And, you know, he said, I don't remember how many years he said. Yeah. And, and But I think the idea that there would be any finite number there, um, or at least number which is less than the uh, the number of years in recorded history, I think offends you to your core in a very deep way. I think it, it floods your system with um, the flight true. or fight hormones that, that cause you to break I out mean, in a back sweat. To the, back to the point with which we began, that there's, you know, precedent is this, is this uh, stock of knowledge. You know, um, a, a capital stock, it depreciates. It doesn't, it loses value over time. It's not as fit for the circumstance. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, it's not as helpful in solving problems. And so we renew by adding more information. And the, so it's all good. It's like, yeah, it's fine. Th- things wear out. That's fine. Um, yeah, I guess. But, I, but the notion of like, oh, is... what we need to do is pack it all up and burn it um, <laughs> is, is, just, is just crazy and stupid and not, and not serious. Well, it's, I it's don't profoundly know. unserious. There are informational systems in which information is used for a purpose, in which purging of information is very important to the efficient functioning of that system. Yes, if it's if it really is g- actually getting in your way, making it harder to, for you to find the things you need, if right. it really is cruft, sort of... Like you can imagine an old card catalog system where there are maybe constantly, maybe in a large library, constantly new volumes of maybe the same books coming in or new editions of things where, where maybe a better working catalog would move some of the, some of the cards of the older editions to a different catalog, like the archive catalog. And then here's, here's just our new catalog. So, so sometimes, you know, this is the second week in a row where I, where I've had to argue to you, Joe, that more information is not always better. Mm. And I've referred you to the 2016 elections. (laughs) You know, a long time ago, I read an article called the burden of knowledge, which is all about right. How more knowledge in that case is not always better. So ignorance is sometimes preferable, but certainly (laughs) less information is sometimes better. That's an even easier claim to, yeah. to make out. And so, and I don't think anything I've said is really in, in some way de- at, deeply at odds with well, that. Well, but it does suggest that maybe, maybe, ha- maybe giving a court some amount of control over which dispositions should be used as, as, as precedential arguments in future cases. Now, it's not limiting argument in any way. It's using the, right. the kind of the, the – um, uh, the uh, uh, what's the right word? The the words are not coming today. The, well, the, look, I, you know, using the talisman's a precedent, like it limits the ability of those. 
I definitely the, the ability to use those. how could it be otherwise like not only do I think they can and should have that power how could it be otherwise of course they have that power um what what I think is what I think should not be uh, permissible and isn't under the current federal rules of right. procedure is that you're forbidden to tell them about it right you're forbidden to to darken their door with yeah. the assertion that this thing might be relevant I kind um, of, agree of course with that, you, but, you should be mm. able to tell them it's relevant and then they can I mean, make of it what I, they will you can come up with the obvious so yeah what would a good use of that would be you know you decided this case in 1984 that was the last opinion on this issue and here is a description of the 30 cases since then that follow a certain kind of pattern. And if you look at this pattern, you will see the ways in which that old opinion is not working very well because maybe it's pointing in different ways. There's mm-hmm. something like, um, so I can see that. Yeah. Um, but all, all I was trying to say is there are costs to that, right? There's, of course there are costs there are. of having this kind of larger corpus, cor- uh, corpus and, you know, so right. I don't know. And there, and there are costs to, of flinging, you know, darts in the dark. Which is you, they Don't. might land in someone's backside instead of a corkboard. Also, of course, they, of course, there are costs to these various practices and benefits to these various practices. We're all muddling through, trying to get the best benefit for the smallest cost. Of course. Are right, we going to zip up the mailbag, or are we going to get I to think another? We one? have to. <laughs> Why do we have Cause, to? Because it's like eight o'clock now. We've oh been at God. this for eighteen hours. No, we have not. It's only it's it's only six o'clock. Mm, good point. It's not even six o'clock yet. So let's, let's push this thing out and let's do some more. And I think what we should do is we, we should, should do 18 more. We should promise our listeners that we're going to get better. <laughs> <laughs> I, the only promise I'm, I can make is that I'm definitely getting worse. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I'm just dragging oh, my carcass toward the grave. So we did, should we do that one, that one email of the listener who, who had, who was the one, the apocryphal listener who, who is now realized, and, boy, we really do need to quit because the, the, the audio thing just stopped on me. Yeah, so that, is, that is not a good sign. Right. But this the is the computers one I'm, start to rebel. This is the one I'm talking about. This is Listener Jensen. So this is really like a time capsule because Listener Jensen is not going to get to this for a little while. Mm. But Listener Jensen says, hi, guys, in episode 11, the 12th episode, see, yeah. List, yeah episode good zero. on you, yeah, Jensen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You remark about feeling bad for the, quote, poor sap that finds the show way down the line and has a huge mountain of episodes to get through. <laughs> and I'm that sap. It's actually nice, though. I now have like five years worth of episodes to follow the development of speed trap law. Mm, it trails off. Yeah. Sorry, Jensen. Yeah, bad, as you've experienced bad, by now. Bad news, Jensen. Right? <laughs> as you um, now know. It seemed like such a rich vein. Um, and um, yeah, the, the, the yeah. ore ran out. We're basically dilettantes. <sighs> but for real, I love the show. Even though it isn't always relevant to me, I'm Canadian. It scratches my itch for good debate, <laughs> law and politics, without being too serious or structured. Well, we, we do excel. We do excel at that, right? We do. Uh, of, of course, this might change in the next 180 episodes, but I'll keep listening to find out. Sincerely, Jensen. Yay. If this comes up in the fan mail part of the show, this is a PS, I'll email you in a year when I get to that episode. Cool. And I can't wait for that. And anyone who is doing this, like anyone who has like, is a completionist, like I would be if I were to discover our yeah. show, right? I would go back and listen to them all. Um and and indeed, I, I think listening to them all in order, every show without missing one, is the only way to listen to the show. Interesting. That's the only way to do it, right, Joe? Yeah. But the uh, I too eagerly await the arrival of the follow up email from listener Jensen. It's such a message in a bottle thing. But I, I I encourage anyone who who has listened in that way or has caught up to to because you, you've seen our lives in in fast forward. Mm. Please tell us are do are we getting older? Like like it's legit older? Not I know we're getting older. Um, are we getting stupider? Mm. Are we getting um, uh, overly serious? Are we getting more pessimistic? 
Uh, do we feel jaded? Like, how am I changing? Like, this is this is like looking at yourself. Like, if you take a picture of yourself every so day in really front of the mirror. asking people to oh, yeah. Yeah, reflect yeah, yeah. back to us. Yeah, oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com. Have like, we changed, like, someone who experiences us in that much more compressed way. Yeah. Do they see a different us that we could see? Yeah, that we would not be able to see. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's like taking a picture of yourself in front of the mirror, like every day, you know, and then you, and you fast forward through them all and you can see yourself age in a, in a way that is um, maybe, maybe disturbing, yeah. but, but probably good for you to, to consume and, and, and meditate upon. Right. Yeah. Write us about that. Yeah. I would say the email address, but I'll get it wrong. Or log in. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we'll end it right there. <laughs>